Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in the name of Jesus, our priest, our savior, our king, our mediator. Lord, we know there is one name given among men by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus. Lord, he has established the new covenant by which we receive the inheritance that was promised to us. He is the way and the truth and the life that no one comes to you except through him. He is the one that you made to be sin on our behalf so that in him and through him we can stand rightly before you that we will be made righteous in your sight because of Christ. Lord, we pray for those in authority over us, our local government, our regional, state governments, Lord, our national government. We ask that you would help us to submit to them that we would be people that understand that there is no authority over us except those which are from you and those which you have instituted. Lord, we also ask for the salvation of those who are in authority that lead our country in the ways of man. We ask that you, through the Holy Spirit, would speak to them, draw them to yourself, that they might lead us in our nation before you. Lord, we ask that as our missionaries who have been sent out and called to proclaim the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, go about that work. Lord, may you protect them. May you give them open doors. May you steady their hand as they go to the plow every day, bringing your good news to lost people. Lord, we also thank you that we have people who risk their lives to defend us, to protect us, police, fire, military, many others. Lord, we ask for their safety and peace. We also ask that you would grant them salvation, draw them to yourself. Lord, and for their families who send them away every morning into danger, that you would give them the peace that only you can give. Lord, we ask that you would convict us of our sins. Lord, our sins are many, but your mercy is more. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for both our thoughts and our actions that go against your will that you would forgive us as we sin against you. Lord, we know that you are perfect and deserve better than anything we can offer. Lord, we pray that we would live a righteous life, that we would have your peace. Lord, we pray that we would be people who are devoted to prayer, who seek your will in our lives, who seek your face. Lord, may you turn your face to us, be pleased Lord, may we seek your good pleasure. Lord, as we worship you through song, new songs we sing to you that proclaim your greatness, the glory of Jesus Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. May we now worship you through your word given to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, through the pen of men who were undeserving, who were unworthy to be called your servants, much like we are. Lord, we pray that through the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of your Holy Spirit living in us, that these words would be your words to your people. Lord, you know that my words are insignificant. Lord, it is only your words that have meaning and have power. So Lord, as we look at your word today, may they indeed have meaning and power for us this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to finish out the chapter today, starting in verse 25. And undoubtedly, you are familiar with skiing. You put on the skis and you go down the nice soft slopes. Hopefully, you don't fall very much. But what you may not be familiar with is tree skiing. Tree skiing, I don't really need to define. It's kind of right there in the name. The idea is instead of skiing down this nice cleared slope, you do that exact same thing, but in the forest, dodging trees. So that's the response that most people give because it's an extreme sport that carries an extreme amount of risk because of the name tree skiing. The big goal with tree skiing is to avoid the trees which seems to me like if you just go over to where they've cleared the trees, you do the same thing. But tree skiers, they like the thrill. And one of them, a world champion, Kim Reichhelm, gives this advice. Very simple, very succinct. Don't stare at what you don't want to hit. So as the trees are coming to you and you're seeing the line and you drop in, don't stare at the trees. As you turn to see the tree, you undoubtedly are like, there's the tree, oh, there's the tree, there's the tree. So instead, look between the trees. Don't stare at what you don't want to hit. And much like our passage today, we don't stare at what we don't want to hit. We're going to be looking at worry. And the more that we stare at our worries, the more that we think about our worries, the larger the obstacle of our worries becomes as we are going down the hill of life. The problems become bigger, the worries get closer, and before you know it, as the tree skiers say, you'll have a face full of bark. That's the bad part of staring at what you don't want to hit. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, going all the way back to the beginning when we started in chapter 5, Jesus has this big picture idea that followers of Jesus, followers of God, ought to live differently. Our lives ought to live and look and be different than the rest of the world. Jesus starts way back and he says that you are to be salt. That Christians are to be salt in a decaying world. To stave off that decay. To add flavor to a flavorless world. That we as Christians are to be light. That as the light of Christ came and shone on mankind... Mankind did not want the light. They loved the darkness because in the darkness they hid their deeds. But we as Christians have the light of Christ and we reflect the light of Christ. Jesus had a series of sayings, you have heard it said, where he takes a part of the law and tells them, you've heard this part of the law. But I tell you, and he takes the law and applies it to the heart. Everybody was living according to the law, but as followers, 
followers of Jesus, we ought to be different and our hearts ought to reflect the law. And then Jesus said, don't be like the hypocrites. When they give, when they pray, when they fast, they want everybody to see it. That's why they do what they do. And Jesus is saying, don't be like them, but be different. And that same thing applies to today. The world worries. It has concerns about everything. And if I could summarize everything that Jesus says today in verses 25 through 34, he says, do not worry. Very stark contrast between what Jesus says and what the world does to live differently. Now, my kind of big picture idea here is that Christians who understand God's nature turn to him instead of to worry. Christians who understand God's nature turn to him instead of worry. Let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter 6. We'll start in verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Consider and observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? Jesus starts this with therefore, which he goes back to verses 19 through 24, and he kind of grabs those to bring those into the discussion. And he says, remember, you can only serve one master. You serve God or you serve money. Therefore, taking that idea and applying it, you serve God or you serve worry because you can't serve both of them. You love God and money is somewhere down the list of second, third, fourth, fifth. Or you love money and God is somewhere else off the list. So taking that, you either will worry or you will serve God. Those two things do not go together. The reason is, is worry by definition is not trusting God. Worry is saying one of two things. Either God cannot handle what I have in front of me, my concerns, my worries, or God will not handle my worries. When we worry, we say, I don't trust God to be able, or I don't trust God to be faithful to take care of my problems. Jesus gives a great example and he says, consider the birds. Think about the birds. Some hatch in a paradise. They just like 
pop out of their shell and they look around. There's no predators. There's food everywhere. There's water everywhere. And the birds just do bird things. They fly around and eat and make more birds and then they die. And then some other birds hatch and they look around and it's 130 degrees and there's no food, there's no water, there's hawks above, and some hatch into this dry and deadly desert. But here's what Jesus says about both of them. The birds that hatch in a paradise and the birds that hatch in a desert, neither one plant crops, neither one harvest crops, neither one stores up food for a later date. The reason is in verse 26, Jesus says, because your heavenly father feeds them. It's interesting because Jesus does not say those birds and those birds, their heavenly father feeds them. Jesus says, your heavenly father feeds them. The reason he says that your heavenly father feeds them is because this is not about the birds. This parable that Jesus is telling about the birds is really about you. Consider the birds that they don't store up, that they don't worry about planting, that they don't worry about harvesting because God will take care of you. The birds are the picture of how we ought to live. The freedom that comes from trusting in God. Now beyond God's care and his concern for the birds and for the flowers, what Jesus is saying is that God loves and cares about you. That God's care and concern is about you. Like a father loves their children, like a mother loves her children, we are called children of God. And in the same way that you would give anything for your children, that you would do anything for your children, that you would die for your children, that's the love that God has for you. He made the flowers beautiful. He provides for the birds and all their birdie things that they need to do. But so much more does he care about you. That's all he's saying here. That they don't labor and spin. They don't worry. They don't store up. Because for the sole reason that God cares about them. His greatest proof of love the example here is the birds and the flowers, but the greatest proof of love that God has for you is that he redeemed you from your empty way of living, that he pulled you out of the muddy pit, that he gave you and offers you a new life in Christ. That's the proof that God so loved you. If we know that God loves us like a father does his children, like a mother does her children, then we can trust that God desires the best for us, that he is faithful in his love for us, because he is our father. The birds don't worry because 
your heavenly Father provides for them. Look at verse 31. Jesus continues and he says, So, now knowing all of those things, therefore, or so, don't worry, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? Metaphorically, he said it that way. I have no idea. <laughs> because the Gentiles eagerly seek those things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Now, if you are a, but what about blank? What about, I'll grab this one. But what about, and you feel like you got to fill in the blank? If that's you, but what about my food or my clothes or my water? Like, that was their problem. Their primary concern, like, almost all day was spent growing food, harvesting water, and making clothes. Compared to that, we live in a paradise. We don't struggle for food or for water. Clothes are prevalent. But if we take that same idea, but what about, and we insert our fears or our apprehensions about the future, our concerns, but what about, and that's where we start to take it. If that's you, if you're a but what about type person, I want to introduce you to the Apostle Peter. Because Peter was a but what about kind of person. You remember that Peter was out with his buddies one night fishing. It was dark and they were out just fishing and doing stuff out on the lake and they're a long way from, from shore. And then Peter and the guys were sitting there and then one of them's like, hey, 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 look, 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 what is that? And they're like, I have no idea what that is. Look at it. Look at it. It's a ghost. And they all start to lose it because they see a ghost walking on the lake to them. And Jesus is like, guys, I'm Jesus. It's me. I'm here. And Peter's like, you know, this is Peter's first thought. I'm always surprised by Peter, even though... Like, I feel like you know what Peter's first thought's going to be. But Peter's like, if it's really you, tell me to walk out there. That's your first thought is like, I'll do it too. So Jesus is like, come on. Come on, Peter. If that's your first thought, then let's go. So Peter walks out on the water. I have no idea what the other disciples were thinking because they just saw what they thought was a ghost. They're like probably pulling one of the guys back in the boat who thought, I'm just going to start swimming and running away. And then Jesus is like, okay, Peter. So now Peter's also walking on the water. And then Peter starts to, but what about? But what about the depth of this lake? Man, that's a deep lake. I cannot touch the bottom from here. What about the wind? But what about the shore? I, I don't think I can swim that far. Like, that's a long way. What about the wind blows the boat away? And how, I got to walk back all that way to get back in the boat. But what about the waves? The waves feel like they're getting high. Are the waves getting higher? Is this like, but what about the water that's starting to, whip into my face like I can feel the water. Am I sinking? And Peter, all of a sudden, starts to stare at what he does not want to hit. And Peter starts to look down at the water, and but what about the whole thing? 
And so Peter starts to sink. Peter learned this lesson in his life multiple times. This is not the first time, it's not the last time that Peter starts to take his concerns that Jesus says, and Peter, you got burdens? I'll take them. My yoke is easy. Just give them to me. And so Peter so many times takes all of his burdens and gives them to Jesus. And he's like, I don't want this. I can't deal with this. You said you'll deal with it. So there you go. I'm going to give it to you and trust that you're going to deal with it. But then Peter walks back over. He's like, I'm going to need that one back. I'm going to need some of my worries back because I got to worry about these things. I don't know if you can. I don't know if you will. So I'm going to take it and do my best at worrying about my things. And that's when Peter starts to sink, taking his eyes off Jesus and noticing the trees. Thankfully for us, we know that throughout Peter's life, he learned these lessons. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Peter grabs all of his worries back and he says, I know that I can walk on the water now because look at me, I'm doing it. Wow, look at me, I'm walking on the Guys, look at the water and I'm on it. I'm trusting Jesus. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to walk on the water much longer. But later, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand that literally reached down into the water as Peter was sinking not even metaphorically, literally the mighty hand of God reached to Peter and says, come on, Peter, why you got such little faith? Let me pull you out of the water. The mighty hand that allowed Peter to get out of the boat is the mighty hand that allowed Peter to look at his own worries and his own troubles and the mighty hand of God allowed Peter to deal with his own problems. And the mighty hand of God is what taught Peter to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. If we're going to be humbled, may it be under the mighty hand of God. Peter also goes on, he says, casting your cares on him. And how many times have your little kids run into you in the middle of the night, scared because they had a nightmare? Or run up to you and pull up their pant legs so they can see if there's a drop of blood and they're like squeezing it to see if there's a little drop of blood. I think there's a drop of blood. I need a Band-Aid. That's our rule. If there's no blood, there's no Band-Aid. And so they're always like scratching at it. Like, I think there's blood. You know, but they, they come to us. As they get older, they come to us with confusion about life. Why is this the way that it is? But they come to us because they can trust us. They come to us because we have proven faithful to love them, to care about them. And if your life is a nightmare, and if your knee is bleeding, if you're confused about life, then run to your Father. Let the mighty hand of God lift you up. Cast all of your cares on him because... This is what Peter learned. There's so much in that one word, because. Because spans the beginning of Peter's life with Jesus all the way to this point. 
He learned he can cast his cares on Jesus because he cares about you. You can go to your Father in heaven because he cares about you. We are to trust God's proven faithfulness. Through God, we can overcome our doubts. Let's look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be provided to you. To me, the word first stands out because I think a lot of people want to have that desire to seek God. Like, they'll do it, but they'll seek third God, seek fourth God. Like, all right, I've got, I got my family, I got my money, I got my whatever, my whatever, whatever, and I seek fifth God. Maybe fourth some days, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first is very different because when troubles arise, at the first sign of worry, at the first problem that you have, seek first the kingdom of God. Because if you're seeking God first, if that is your first thought when there's trouble, you don't have to worry about the trouble. Because wherever that road leads, you know that you have sought God first. If you're in hot water, you know you won't boil because you're seeking God first. If you're in trouble for doing the right thing, you can trust God. If you don't get a job promotion because you go to church and you're a Christian and that's different than everybody else, that's okay. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things, the things that the birds need, the food, the clothing, all, you know, all of these things will be provided to you. But only if we're seeking God first. If we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And listen to Isaiah 32, 17. The result of righteousness will be peace. The effect of of righteousness will be a quiet confidence forever. I wish I could just stand here till like two o'clock and just read that first line over and over and over. The result of righteousness will be peace. The outcome of righteous living will be peace. What we will earn, the wages of righteousness will be peace. Everyone wants peace. We ch chase peace. We strive for peace. Sometimes we demand peace, ironically. We want peace. And if we seek first God's righteousness, we will have peace. You see, peace and worry do not coexist. Where there is peace, there is not worry. And where there is worry, there is not peace. 
seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. When we walk rightly before the Lord, when we seek God to be first in our lives, we walk in his righteousness, and he will give us peace. If you put God first in everything, he will give you peace. Let's look at this last verse here. Verse 34. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day will have enough trouble of its own. Can I get an amen on that, right? Like, if of all the things that we know about worry, is that today has enough trouble, and I've lived enough tomorrows to know that tomorrow will also have enough trouble. And I would like to say that it's easy to say, don't worry about tomorrow. Just let it go. You'll be fine. Researchers at Penn State had this study about worry, and they asked these study participants to write down every worry that they had for 10 days. So these participants logged every single time they had a worrisome thought or something that worried them, present or future, and they wrote it all down for 10 days. The researchers took those charts, and then they went back to the participants over the next 30 days, and they said, did this happen? Did this happen? And they asked them one by one all of their worries. Did they come true, or did they not come true? Of all of the worries that these participants wrote down over a 10-day period, 8% came true. Of all the things they worried about, 92% were unfounded. The majority of the study participants had 0% of their worries come true. The majority of the people that wrote down all of their worries, not a single one came true. So then we come to Jesus here and it says, therefore, don't worry. You know, they say art imitates life. And I feel like there's a lot of times where the cultural wisdom, the worldly wisdom, imitates God's word. And they could have just gone and said, well, therefore, don't worry. You know, we know what the results are going to be of the study. Because Jesus says, let tomorrow be tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble. It's true, tomorrow will bring trouble. But don't worry about it. Let it go. It's easy to say to someone else, don't worry about that. Let it go. You'll be fine. And then we go back home and we take all of our worries and we pile them up in front of us. And then we think about tomorrow and we grab tomorrow's worries and we start piling those on top of today's worries. And then we think in the future, well, what if this happens or what if that? And we grab the future's worries and we pile them on top of us. And before you know it, the pile's crushing us. It's no wonder that we spiral out of control. It's no wonder that our culture lives with debilitating worry and anxiety. It shouldn't surprise us that people who worry don't even want to get out of bed in the morning. It shouldn't surprise us that worry causes people to try to escape in any way possible. 
don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. You've spiraled out of control before, right? I know I'm not the only one who's grabbed tomorrow's problems and then tried to deal with them when they're not even actual problems and you're just making things up and then like, oh, but what about? And what if he said that? And what if that happened? And you like play out this whole weird scenario and then you go back and you're like, but not even the beginning thing has happened. But you're already like two years down the road trying to deal with some future problem. You know, this was a, a tough week for me. Sometimes I like to read ahead, you know, where we're going to be going. You know, like, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, it's easy. So I'll read ahead a few weeks, and I'm like, all right, what is God going to teach me in these weeks? Because I know there's always something, and every once in a while I can look ahead, you know, my, my self-inclined wisdom, and be like, oh, that's what God's going to teach me. I'm not doing that. And I stop, and I'm like, but if I'm not doing that, he's teaching me right now that I should be doing this now. So sometimes I can kind of see my own faults ahead of time, but I didn't see this week coming. On Tuesday, I was leaving the church, and my gas light had been on for a while, but I was just going to the church and back to home, and so I was like, that's fine. It'll be okay. Light can be on for a long time, I'm pretty sure. And so like, I just kind of like watched the gauge. And so I got to the exit of the church and I was in the right lane about to turn home. And then I was like, but what if there's an emergency? And so I look at the gauge and it's like, just past the line a little bit. So I'm thinking, well, if the emergency is local, I can get across town. I know I've got that much gas. So then I was about to pull out and I was like, oh, but what if there's a bigger emergency and I need a whole tank of gas? And I was like, just forget it. I'm just going to go get gas. So I went and got gas. And I got home. And 30 minutes later, there was an emergency. My mother-in-law called and said, our five-year-old Alora has thrown up. And she's just staring. And she's not responding. And her body's tight. And we don't know what's wrong. So we get in the now full of gas car. And we drive out to meet him, and we arrange a place to meet him, and we call an ambulance to meet us there. And the whole way out there, I just want something to do. I want to control it. I want to grab all of those things that I've given to God, like, I trust you with the lives of my kids, but I want that one back. I'll do what I need to do to ensure her safety. So we go out and we meet the ambulance. My wife gets in the ambulance and I follow the ambulance toward the hospital. And the whole way there, I'm, I'm praying. And you know, like, at least for me, most of the time I pray, I start with this formal greeting to God and I have a pattern, I guess, without even thinking about it of how I pray. But this was not like that prayer. This was just conversation where I'm just like, here's everything I'm worried about. Here's my concern. Here's my problems. You said you will deal with them. So there you go. And I felt the peace of God because I knew that I couldn't do anything. I was just behind the ambulance, not knowing what's happening, 
not knowing what was going to happen. I could do nothing except for trust God with what he might decide to do. And that was fearful to me because I didn't know what he would decide to do. So I'm behind the ambulance and we, we get pulled in and I, I get out of the car and I run to open the back of the ambulance door. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't know if she's alive. I don't know if my wife is going to be holding her lifeless body. And then these thoughts start like darting across my head like, and I don't want to plan a funeral. I don't want to buy a little casket. What will I tell the other kids? I don't know if my wife can endure this again. And all of those thoughts as they were coming, I just kept giving them back to God because I can't deal with these things. I can't. I literally can't do anything. So I trust God with everything. And I open the door and she's sitting up and she's said a couple words and she's fine. She's totally fine. But she's not fine because of my worry. She's not fine because I was able to do something. She's kind, or she's fine because the mighty hand of God reached down to save her. She's fine and allows me to be fine because I can cast all of my cares on him because he cares for me. That Penn State study showed that most of our worries do not come true. The vast majority of the things we worry about will never happen. But I want to tell you that even if, even if they happen, even if your worst imaginable worry happens, even if it does happen, the Lord is still faithful. His faithfulness does not increase or decrease based on our faith. Our hope is in God's faithfulness, not in the waverings of my heart, not in the thoughts that go through my mind, because the God that we serve is the same forever. The song that we're going to sing in a few minutes is, it has a line that says, As I pour out my heart, these things I remember. You are faithful, God, forever. Today, tomorrow, forever, we need not worry. That's what Jesus says. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. It all wraps up because he cares about us, because he loves us, because like the birds, like the flowers, he will care for you as his children. You know, it's been said that worry is like a rocking chair. It'll give you something to do, but it'll never get you anywhere. I think when we consider worry and these things that we can 
try to do. If you're a worrier, I want to give you three thoughts. It kind of goes back to my original thesis that Christians who understand God's nature turn to him instead of worry. The first thing is that you have to be a Christian. You'll never know the peace of God if you don't, through Jesus, have peace with God. You have to be a Christian to know God's peace. You'll never have the peace of God until you have peace with God. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who came and made peace with God on your behalf. Jesus comes and offers himself as the payment for all of the bad things that you've done, for all of the sins that you've committed. And by his death on the cross, he offers peace with God to you. The Bible says that he is the mediator, that there is God who is perfect and righteous and just, and us who are the opposite. And a perfect and righteous and just God does not let people like us into heaven. But Jesus came and on our behalf died on the cross. And now because of Jesus, we can have peace with God. So if you want peace, if you want to stop worrying, you have to be a Christian. You have to be someone who seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Second is that you must understand God's nature. God's nature is just who he is, the attributes about God, what makes him who he is. There's so many different attributes about God. I just want to give you two. The first is that he is sovereign. Being sovereign means that he can do anything he wants because he has the power and the ability to do absolutely anything he pleases. There is nothing that stops God from doing what he desires to do. He is absolutely sovereign over all things. Heaven, earth, imagined, or true. He is sovereign over all things. The second attribute, the second part of God's nature that I wanted to, to give you is that he is faithful. God's faithfulness means that he will always do what he has said he will do. This is quickly becoming one of my favorite attributes of God because it means he's consistent. I can look in the Bible and know who God is to the best of my limited ability, and I can project that into my situations because I know that God will be faithful to what he has said. So if I know God and I know his word, then I can know what that means in my life. God is faithful. That doesn't mean that I will know in every situation how he will care for me or the specific things that he will do, but I will know and have confidence that he will care for me because he says he cares for the birds and he cares for me so much more than the birds. And the third thing is that we must turn to God, turn away from our worry and turn to God. We turn to God in faith, we turn to God in trusting in his word, and we turn to God in prayer. Philippians 4, 6 says, don't worry about anything. It doesn't say, don't worry about most of the things. Don't worry about the small things. 
Don't worry about what happens in the future. Anything just means anything. And then, but in everything, which means as it sounds, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your request to God. Take them and say, God, I don't want to worry about this. I want you to handle this. I want you to come and deal with all of my problems. I've got problems, some I created, some just happen naturally, but I want you to have all of them. And what a great God that comes and offers to take all of the problems we have. And he says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, just through prayer, give them to God. Just make your requests known to God because he cares for you. Because you seek first his righteousness and he will take care of the rest. Worries are put to rest when we understand God's nature and we turn to him. I want to give you a final thought here. You know, we are skiing downhill through life. There are trees everywhere. And sometimes it feels like we are going way too fast for it to be safe. Rather than seeing and focusing on those worries, what the skiers do is when they drop in, they plot a line and they see the line that they want to take. They're not looking at the trees. Those are just a distraction for where they're trying to go. And for us, as we're navigating these treacherous woods of life, we need not focus on the worries, but we need to look through the worries, past the worries, and fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who is the one who says, therefore, don't worry. We only understand the peace that comes from God when we seek him first above all things, when we put him first, and then we just cast all of our cares on him because we know he cares for us. God is capable of handling all of your worries, and he is faithful to do just that. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful that you use my inability to teach me that I am incapable. Lord, you tell us not to worry, and yet we worry. We ask that through the Holy Spirit that you would convict us of those times, that you would teach us not to worry, that you would give us the ability to trust you in all things, that we would seek you first, that we would turn to you in prayer, that we would cast our anxieties on you, that we would not look down at the waves or up at the trees, but we would keep our eyes firmly fixed on your Son. Lord, may we be people who not only know that intellectually, but may we be people who do that in the darkest of all situations, that when life is nightmarish and when there's nothing else that we can do, we still choose to turn to you. Lord, you are wonderful. You're amazing. Lord, we are grateful that we can serve a God who does care about us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.